0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for
2: 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get ten percent off your first month. That's better help, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text
0: Chapter twenty eight The Missing Mirror Harry's feet touched road. He saw the achingly familiar Hogsmeade High Street, dark shop fronts, and the outline of black mountains beyond the village, and the curve in the road ahead that led off towards Hogwarts, and light spilling from the windows of the three broomsticks. I'm Casper Terkyle.
2: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We love the quarantined quibblers a new online local group that meets on Wednesdays on Zoom, and it's led by Madison Persinger. I love this. We have a sort of trans-local online local group, and that name is maybe a top five name.
2: Yeah, it's so great. Madison, thank you so much for organizing this. It's so cool.
0: So Vanessa, there was a time toward the end of Divinity School when I started to realize, oh God, I've loved being here, but what the hell do I do for a profession? And so I started thinking about maybe I should become an ordained minister. And I was really captivated. I had two particularly wonderful mentors who were Unitarian Universalists. And the kind of the theology of Unitarian Universalists very much aligned with mine. It's a very progressive, very open, very social justice oriented denomination here in the United States. And so I thought, okay, let me see, maybe this is a home for me spiritually. And maybe it's also a home for me professionally, not necessarily working in a church, but in some way being ordained and being out in the world. So I started the process that you go through to become a minister. And that includes meeting with a mentor who says, yes, I think you could be someone who could be a good minister. It means writing a couple of essays about your own theological outlook and what it means to you. But it also involves a couple of psychometric evaluations. And you spend a couple of days with a therapist or a psychologist. I'm not entirely sure what what exactly their profession was, but they were essentially kind of evaluating, am I someone who would be a responsible, trustworthy, safe, good person to accompany people in, in big questions in their spiritual life? And at the same time as meeting one-on-one with that person, you fill in a couple of tests and you might've heard of the Myers-Briggs evaluation. And then I think I also took the Enneagram as part of that process, which is another sort of personality mapping tool where you it helps you see patterns in your own life, maybe patterns of thinking, patterns of being that might explain why some issues are challenging, some situations kind of stoke you up the wrong way. And I remember reading the results of those, feeling two things at the same time. On the one hand, feeling, oh my God, that's so me. Ah, you know, when you're like really seeing you're like, oh God, it's not pretty help. But on the other hand, I also felt, is this what it's going to be forever? Is this me? Will this ever change? Can I grow out of this? And of course I believe things can change, right? Like I ended up doing one day of a congregational internship and realizing, oh boy, this is not for me. And I made a call that evening and said, I'm really sorry, but I have to quit. And followed by Vanessa Zulton's great advice of quit early, quit, quit while you're ahead. And you know, I'm not ordained. And so I I don't feel like I'm on a fateful path where every decision is laid out for me. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, is there, is there something about my character or my spirit that is somehow fated to be the way it is forever. And that's what I I want to think about with you in this chapter.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're really asking the question, do our characters fate us? Mm. Even in nuanced ways, right? Like not necessarily in these big ways of will I be a minister or not, but in this wherever you go, there you are way that you're always going to respond to things in a certain way. And, you know, we believe a lot in other people's capacity to change. And the question is whether or not we believe in our own capacity to change.
0: I know there's one thing that won't change, Uh which is that your 30-second recaps are particularly strong.
2: (laughs) I don't think, I think that that is something that has changed about us. I think you just as often as not do a great job with the 30-second recap.
0: Is it because I'm no longer doing Polyarkov like, memory lapses?
2: No, that was a a highlight for me. It's downhill since then. Okay, count me in.
0: Three, two, one, go.
2: So Ron, Hermione, and Harry arrive in Hogsmeade, and everybody is like, they're here. The Death Eaters are like, aha, I saw, and let's bring the Dementors. And um, so Harry throws his Patronus, and... Everyone's like, Harry Potter is here. That was a stag. And then Aberforth comes out and is like, you idiots. It was my goat. I put my cat out. Nothing is a big deal. And he has the trio go upstairs and they go up and they eat. And he's like, I hate my brother because it's his fault that my sister is dead. And I feel so guilty about it, too. And um, then they go get Neville.
0: It was a, a strong recap. I loved it.
2: Until the end. I loved it. It was really important that you all knew about the cat. (laughs) And less important that you know how and why Ariana Dumbledore died. That is an editorial choice that I made with a lot of thought and intention.
0: And I fully support that decision.
2: Thank you. Okay, on your mark, get set, go.
0: Okay, so as Aberforth, like, rushes the trio upstairs and is like, hide here, be safe. Um, and they're like, oh, my God, it's Aberforth. And Harry's like, oh, my God, it's your blue eyes. Did you send, like, all that help? You sent Dobby. And, and Dobby's dead. Sad. Um, and then Ron's like, oh, my God, you sent the dough. And he's like, no, it wasn't me. So it's still a mystery. Um, and then he's like, why are you still working for, for um, Double Door? Like, so dumb. Leave it behind. Only bad things happen if you follow his advice. Look at me. Look at my sister. Grendelwald, Like, lots of shooting. She died. Mom also died. She exploded. Bad things.
2: And then Neville. (laughs) Let's just talk for a minute about how hot Neville emerges in this moment.
0: He has long hair and, like, he's got rugged scars. And also I love that this is a sort of catwalk moment because he doesn't just, like, walk through a door. It's a full-on, like, tunnel moment and he just keeps getting larger and his muscles are bulging and, you know, he's, like, got a smize going on because he knows it's Harry. And he's like, Harry, I knew you would come. And actually this would be a great moment for a romantic kiss and I'm sad that we don't get that.
2: Yeah. Well, Casper, let's actually just start with Neville, right? Yeah. First of all... The question of who is fated to be the hero, Neville or Harry, has been a question since book five. Since we've known about the prophecy, we've known that Harry and Neville were sort of equally fated for this role and Voldemort sort of decided it was Harry. And now, you know, in this moment, we find out that Neville has been fighting Voldemort just as much as Harry has, right? He's just had this different battleground of Hogwarts. But then we have Neville say to Harry, this very like fate filled line of Harry, I knew you'd come. So I'm wondering what you think about fate with Neville and Harry.
0: Yeah, this was the first time where I read it, where I felt so confident saying, actually, the prophecy was about them both. And it was true about them both. I think in previous readings, this little moment at the end of the chapter is so brief, right? It's just a line And of course, we're now at the end of book seven. We haven't really seen much of Neville. So it's easy to lose track of him. But in this reading, I feel like he's been much more present with us throughout. And so that feels the first thing to say is like that fate has pulled them both in one way or another. And even if that fate is about choices, right? It was about Voldemort's choice, but it's also been about Harry's choice and about Neville's choice. But I love that we see Neville saying, I knew you would come. Because of course, Harry has been saying this whole time, I know it's in Hogwarts. Now, he's not saying I know Neville's in Hogwarts, but there is some sort of magnetic pull of these two parts of the prophecy coming closer to one another and together overcoming and defeating Voldemort. So I I just love that symbolic moment of these, these two pieces being reunited while Voldemort, of course, has spent so much time splitting his soul into More than two things, obviously. But it's a strategy of separation. And this is a strategy of uniting. And those two parts knew that they would come back together. There is fate, but there's nearly also like faith between these two boys, these two young men, that they're on the same team and that they kept fighting, even though in so many ways they were alone for so long.
2: And of course, Harry did know that Neville was there. Like he was looking at the Marauder's map, seeing Jenny's name, but seeing Neville's name. He knows that, like, Neville, Ginny, and Luna got, quote unquote, punished by going to work for Hagrid, right? Like, he does know that Neville is there fighting. And I think the other reason that I I love Neville saying, I knew you'd come, is that Harry didn't know he would come. I don't think Harry knew that this was going to end at Hogwarts. You know, at no point has he really had a plan. Has he had a vision for how this is going to end?
0: When did Harry ever have a plan?
2: (laughs) Right. I mean, he couldn't have. To Aberforth's point, you know, did Dumbledore tell you all of the plans? Like, no. (laughs) And so I love those moments where someone says to you, I knew you'd do this. And you're like, you did? I did not. Right? Mm. When someone else almost knows you better than you know yourself and has more faith in you than you have in yourself.
0: Yeah. And of course, you know, Neville is greeting him as this sort of savior who's come not to rescue, but definitely to like fortify the troops. And that's something that Harry is still grappling with of like, I am the savior, but also, you know, he knows his limitations so much. And I think that really comes through in the conversation with Aberforth, where, you know, Aberforth is really pushing that sense of like, well, are you sure? Like, all I know from Albus is that his plans didn't work, is that his vision for the future was wrong, that he actually only hurt people that he gave missions to and and trusted to be close to him. So Aberforth is really kind of challenging that narrative of Harry's fate as some sort of savior as well.
2: Ugh, I love Aberforth. I've decided he's my favorite character in the whole series. (laughs) He is, like, such a little, like, Bodhisattva, right? Like, he is resisting meaning-making, sits with people in pain, offers food, and is like, this is not your responsibility. I will just, like, sit here with you. And he has been sitting in the pain of Ariana and has not, like, forgiven... (laughs) I think, like, in an important way. And as this, like, bartender, right? He is giving space for the Death Eaters, but also spying on them. I'm just obsessed with him. I stand for Aberforth.
0: Yeah, because he is really trying to reduce Harry's suffering. He's saying you don't owe him anything. Like, you don't have to be entwined in this story, in this plot. Like, be free. That's what he's really trying to offer him.
2: Yeah, he's like, go to the top of the hill. Hagrid is there with Grot. And then... Just separate the heck out of here. <laughs> yeah. Like Voldemort has won and we can live like this. And like you do not have to sacrifice yourself. And obviously, right, like that is obviously not what I want. Like Aberforth is wrong on his political strategy, but on his questioning the leadership and wisdom of his brother, I think there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in what he is saying, right? Right. And I think that it leads to Harry doing something that I think is so important about fate, which is choosing it rather than acquiescing to it. Mm. You know, I think that something that I was invited to be fated to do was think about the Holocaust a lot, right? Like that mm. was something that my family talked about at dinner every night. And it was just a huge part of my life. And I am really grateful for it. There were several years where I really rejected that narrative about myself and was like, I don't want to be the Holocaust daughter of refugees person. Like, I don't want to be this like child of trauma and spent a long time really pushing that away. Mm. And now that I've welcomed that story and my family story back in my life, I feel like it is on my own terms. And stepping back into that fate in that story is so much more meaningful than if I just was like a drone, sort of accepting it. And I think that that is what Appleforth is giving Harry the opportunity to do here.
0: I am obsessed with this because I think we might see exactly this in how a Patronus is cast, because the shape Patronus's Patroni, Patronosios, take we know are meaningful, right? Harry has a stag because of James. Snape has a doe because of Lily. And we see here that Aberforth has a goat because of Ariana. Or at least the text tells us about this really meaningful moment, right, with goats, with Ariana. And I want to ask you, do you think... That the shape or the animal form that the Patronus takes is one of choice, right? Like in the way that you were just pointing to, like having thought deeply about something, maybe rejected it and then come back to it in a different way. Or is it like instinctual thing that we can't control that takes a form that we might not even want it to take?
2: I mean, it's such a great question, right? Because we see the moment that Harry casts his first stag and it's that he thinks he sees his father. Right. Right. And we also know from Tonks that your Patronus can change. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the answer is both. It's something natural that comes out of you because of your family story or Mm. because of what you're going through. But, you know, I wonder if the first time Snape cast a Patronus, if it was a doe for Lily. I bet when he was 15 and his crush maybe wasn't quite as strong. It was something else.
0: Or that it's a different, you know, maybe it's a less powerful Patronus if it doesn't have that extra layer of return to one's own story in a different way, in the way that you've, you've helped us see. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors,
2: Inc.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the
2: Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Okay, so Casper, we have to dive in to this this story that Aberforth tells us about Ariana. So we find out that Ariana, I mean, is, is fated to be a wizard, right? Is fated to be a witch. She, like all little kids, like can't control it. And magic comes spilling out of her and then these boys attack her to try to stop her from doing the magic and we we obviously don't hear the details of the attack but what I was struck by is how one act of evil can fate so much tragedy so Ariana's magic turns inward because she doesn't want to do it anymore and She sort of starts torturing herself. The Dumbledore father attacks the boys and dies in Azkaban, is sort of what we're led to believe. Ariana accidentally kills her mother, right? Like, it's just tragedy upon tragedy that this one awful, awful act started. And I guess my question is, how do we not let these depraved acts continue to fate us. And the Chavruta, like the only answer I can offer is not that the Dumbledores made any mistakes, but the thing I wish for them is that they had shared the information, right? It seems as though part of the problem is obviously the horrible act, but it's also that they didn't trust the system, right? They didn't trust just like Right now, we don't trust, like, that there was no police that they could safely call to help them intervene in this moment with the three Muggle children. And that they didn't trust the healthcare system to treat Ariana well if they took her to St. Mungo's and to help her heal. And they didn't trust their neighbors to hold them, right? The fact that they couldn't turn outward at all faded them to tragedy just continuing.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about in... Greek tragedy, so often you end up with these kind of generations, like the Orestes cycle, where you have these three plays that kind of follow generations where, you know, there's one murder that's then avenged, that's then avenged, that's then avenged. And it, it's different, of course, than this in the sense that there aren't those direct avengings, but you do see that kind of generational impact both down the generation and across uh, sideways, right? Because here you have Aberforth, who was, Really broken by this experience. And because I really want to resist this sense of fate. Like I want to be able to interrupt. I want it to be different. I want us to believe that we can change this kind of situation because otherwise it feels like a prison, you know. And I think that's why if we read the most generous reading that we can of the conversations that Albus and and Grindelwald had at that point, right, as young men that they wanted to change the system. They wanted to make it better. They didn't want to live in fear and shame and to see the kind of horrors that exactly the story implies. And yet (laughs) Grindelwald goes on to create what at least is a a sort of analogy to a Nazi Reich in the wizarding world. Um, I guess what I'm led to think about is, is the fate of being human or or being wizarding That anything that we create, anything that we try and make ourselves is always going to be imperfect. We cannot create, you know, to use religious language, we cannot create heaven on earth. There's always going to be cracks in the pot that we throw. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. And I, th- I think that that's right. I just think that our circumstances fate us in that they, they shape us. Right. So this mm-hmm. tragedy of Ariana... Albus and Aberforth were both fated by it. They just both responded to that so differently. Aberforth was like, I want to stay home with her. And Albus was like, I want to study and I don't want to let this totally determine my life. And then Kendra died and then their fate shifted again. And Albus was like, I will stay home with her. Right. And I think that these things happen that that make our choices finite right it's not that they they necessarily say and now this is what you have to do but you have to respond to them you know our our parents get older and that fates us either to ignore it or to deal with it a little bit or to deal with it a lot but we have to respond and it's how we respond that i think is sort of the the free will part of that
0: Yeah, it's that delicate balance, isn't it? Because it's like, yes, you can choose to study hard, but if you're in a zip code where you're in a school system that doesn't give you adequate support and resources, then that choice it's not enough. And I think that's something we've tracked throughout these books is it's like, yes, it's about individual choice and it's about individual, you know, purpose and capacity, but that is not the whole story. There are these systems around us that fate us in one in one direction or another.
2: I mean, Aberforth says it. He seems to believe that it was the lying and the secret keeping that caused so many problems in his house, right? He says, Abbas mm. learned about lies and secrets at my mother's knee. And I think that He sees that he and Albus got the same lessons from Kendra, but decided to act totally differently in response to those lessons. Mm.
0: Mm. Do you know what really struck me? And this I hadn't seen this similarity until you just said this right now, but Dumbledore ends up leading an educational institution where, where people come together and learn and, you know, really develop those arts that he cared about as a young person. And what Aberforth chooses to do is to create a gathering place in which people can come together, and it's not the shiny front of a house, you know, kind of Ritz <laughs> tea and cakes establishment of Hogsmead. It's it's the place for people at the margins. Now that might that might be people doing some dodgy deals in the Hog's Head, but like he's creating a place where people can gather and, and build relationships and. I think his role as a barman, as an, a business owner, is 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 one of care, actually. And so I, I'm just seeing this connection between those two brothers' choices with Ariana and now their choices as adults, you know, the career that they chose. It's actually quite consistent.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, Aberforth, if he didn't host this kind of place, first of all, the DA was formed there. Second mm. of all, like he never would have seen that Mundungus had the mirror that he had heard about. From his brother, right? So, like, being in relationship with a different kind of person than, you know, mainstream, whatever that means. These are all such relative terms. But, like, really serves Aberforth well. And, by the way, Albus and Aberforth both found Mundungus Fletcher to be a very worthwhile person to have in their lives.
0: So true. Hashtag find your Mundungus.
2: (laughs) Find your dung. Casper, one one other place that I saw this idea of fate is with the Death Eaters at the very beginning of the chapter, right? So Ron, Harry, and Hermione show up and it like sets off some alarm and the Death Eaters are like, Harry Potter is here. And they like all jump out. And I just imagine that some of these Death Eaters for a moment are telling themselves it is my fate to find him.
1: (laughs) Right?
0: I am the chosen one.
2: (laughs) I am the one who's going to get to do this. And I know that there have been moments in my life where I have believed that I have been fated to do something or to like be with someone. Oh, my God. Don't you think it's a sign that it's meant to be and been like totally, totally wrong? What do you make of that, of the moments where we think we're fated and either either the good thing happens or it falls apart? But why do we tell ourselves those stories? Why don't we just say, oh, I'm so lucky to be here when Harry Potter arrives.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit like Napoleon in 1812 being like, I am fated to conquer the world. Next up, Russia in wintertime. And it's like, "Mm, it's (laughs) not going to (laughs) happen.
2: They couldn't do it on elephants. You can't do it now. You got to wait until down parkas are invented. Duh.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Get yourself a good tent. But, you know, on the one hand, I want to say, we are meaning-making creatures. We make meaning out of random stuff. We see some, we see three dots and we say, wow, this is a pattern. Or we don't even see three dots. We see two dots. It's like, your name starts with a J. My name starts with a J. It's meant to be. <laughs> part of my brain says that. But then the other part of my brain, I think, has a bit more room for mystery. Because there are moments when something happens and I'm like, I knew it. Case in point, yesterday I posted a little silly Instagram story. And as I picked up my phone, I was like, I absolutely know it's my friend Bob who's responded to this. And I opened it and there was one message, like one DM, and it was my friend Bob, who we don't send DMs back and forth very often. So there are those moments where I'm like, How did I know that? And my friend Lawrence has really tried to help me notice that kind of sense of intuition or alignment with fate and to take it more seriously, not to think that I have some sort of magical like fate reading powers, but just to be like, gosh, isn't that interesting? I had an intuition. It turned out to be true. Can we cultivate that kind of fate reading, intuitive, sensory field? Because I I do think that there are ways of knowing beyond what science can currently help us understand and this feels like one of them for me so I I feel conflicted
2: (laughs) but what do we do with the moments where it turns out we were totally wrong where we read it wrong where it's like I am the death eater to catch Harry Potter and then it's like no you're not dude you're just a death eater at a pub
0: (laughs) you just ordered a beer and got annoyed by a cat Um, I mean one answer is to say well could still be me just not right now if you want to save face but Because sometimes it is just like ego and wanting to be special.
2: Right. And that's my concern is that when we believe too much that we can see the stars, then it's delusions of grandeur. Right. I mean, I think the thing like the productive thing to do in those moments is to say, "Okay, clearly I wanted that. And it's to use it Mm. as an opportunity to reflect on yourself and go, why is it important to me to be the one to catch Harry Potter And to like use it as an opportunity to reflect.
0: Well, and that's ultimately what I love so much about some of those kind of evaluations and things like the Enneagram and like Myers-Briggs that I talked about in my story is that those tools help you see those patterns of what you want to think or, or the kind of traps that we can fall into about the stories that we tell ourselves. And I think that's that's what you're asking us to pay attention to when we have thoughts that are like, it's my fate. It's like, well. If it's always your fate to win, like there's probably something else going on.
2: But it is always my fate to win.
0: <laughs> Only 30 second recaps.
2: <laughs> so Casper, this is our last Flora allegia for a little while. And I am wondering what your sparklet was.
0: I chose, don't be stupid, boy.
2: Oh, wow. Advice.
0: <laughs> How about you?
2: I chose upstairs, keep the cloak on, be quiet. Oh. Wow. We both picked super bossy slimes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's put these sentences together and see what we think they mean. So don't be stupid, boy. Upstairs. Keep the cloak on. Be quiet.
0: I mean, part of me wonders if this is actually actually one sentence because it works so well together. You know, they're both clearly like instructions.
2: Yeah. Don't be stupid. Be safe. Right. Like, get upstairs. I mean, it is sort of what Aberforth wants for Harry to do. It's like, don't be stupid. Don't follow my brother. Just like, go be safe and be quiet.
0: What really attracted me to this phrase, don't be stupid, boy, was the word boy, because Harry has, I mean, he is still, of course, in school age, but he's also come of age. So he's in this really interesting in-between place in terms of boy, man, identity. And this is such a, I don't want to say belittling, but it is a kind of infantilizing moment. Basically, Aberforth is implying that he's stupid and he's calling him a boy. I can imagine that there'd be huge amounts of resistance that comes up in Harry, but we don't really see that. I was just really struck by the way in which you could hear this and be massively insulted, but that doesn't happen. And I I kind of wondered why.
2: I mean, I wonder if Harry just appreciates being treated like a child, right? Right. It's like, yeah, I'm not a grown up. I love that before it sees Harry as a kid. It's very Molly Weasley, right? Mm. I mean, people have been treating Harry like a grown up, right? Like Hagrid has him help, you know, get rid of a dragon when he's like 12. Like this child has been treated like an adult forever. And so taking that responsibility off of Harry, I think, is a really beautiful invitation. It's so nice to just take charge without riddles. <laughs> it's just all so the opposite of Albus.
0: Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Yeah, the directions in yours are like so clear, right? Upstairs, keep the cloak on, be quiet, like very direct, very concise.
2: I guess I'm thinking also from Hermione and Ron's perspective, just like how comforting this must be. It's just like Mm. the first clear instructions of someone meeting all of their needs and like saving them. No one has saved them in so long. They keep having to save themselves. They go to adults who betray them and who make it harder. I mean, you know, Dobby obviously did a lot, but that turned out tragic also. And this is just a grown up who's like, I will keep you warm. I will keep you safe and I will feed you.
0: And I mean, that is the first thing that he does. Once they're safe, he provides food. Right. So if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which has legit criticisms, but there there are some like fundamental needs that are immediately met. Shelter, safety, food. I love that connection to Molly Weasley like I'd, n- I'd never seen Aberforth as a parent before and there is something kind of wonderful caring direct authoritative <laughs> in both of these little sparklets that, that come through so much and help us see him in this parental role which of course we have always known that's how he was with Ariana too and as uh, how he had to be yeah.
2: Remind me where your sentence is in the text?
0: So Aberforth has just said to the trio, look, stay here. We'll get you out tomorrow morning, you know, when when it's daylight, blah, blah, blah. And Harry's like, we're not leaving. We need to get into Hogwarts. (laughs) And Aberforth is like, don't be stupid, boy. Like, you've already been dumb enough to come here. Like, don't push it. So he's really trying to kind of draw a boundary of like, no, this far and no further.
2: Yeah, (laughs) And like. I also think that saying don't be stupid in this situation also validates how brave what they want to do is, right? If a grown up is being like, that's idiotic, what you actually know is that you're taking a risk.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're getting different responses to it, though, from the trio. Because Hermione is sitting there silently being like, thank you. Like, <laughs> this is what I was saying all along. Uh,
2: and Ron is like, I'm hungry.
0: Yeah, wear food. Um, <laughs>
2: Sorry, I'm dumb right now. I need food. I'm like, me too, Ron.
0: <laughs> How about yours? Where, where does it come from?
2: Mine is right after. So it's clear that the cloak can't be summoned. And Mm. Aberforth has just come out and like issued this lie about the cat and the goat. And this is what he like whispers to Harry, to the trio. And Mm. it's all three of them. Upstairs, keep the cloak on, be quiet. And what the part of what's interesting to me is the upstairs, keep the cloak on. He doesn't think that they're safe upstairs. And he is right. Maybe the Death Eaters will follow him up, right? So it's just an abundance of caution. Should we switch the sentences? Yeah. Okay, so upstairs, keep the cloak on, be quiet, don't be stupid, boy.
0: The thing that strikes me is how different the communication styles are between... Aberforth and Albus right like we have had these wonderful meaningful soul enriching conversations that are oblique with references and insights but not quite revealing the whole truth and maybe I'll show you a memory but I'm not going to contextualize it right like all of this stuff for like seven years
2: Uh, a lot of what do you think that means
0: yeah (laughs) I love you very much little weapon of my destruction (laughs) um (laughs) and like Aberforth is just like like get upstairs keep the cloak on shut your face and don't be stupid like it's just it's just the ultimate opposite and yet of course in this same chapter we've seen those two piercing blue eyes that you know are so so similar so I guess you know we've talked so much about fate and the limits of getting away from it and I feel like that difference in sameness theme is showing up so strongly for me in this floral legium
2: Well, the other thing that strikes me is that by the end of the chapter, Aberforth does a 180. It goes from keep the cloak on, be quiet, we'll get you out in the morning, to sending Ariana to go get Neville. Yeah. The end of the day, we find out that Aberforth is actually the only way into Hogwarts. He knows that and he brings them into his home. So even though he doesn't want them to go, he's also the only way in. Any last thoughts, Casper, before we wrap up this Floralegia?
0: upstairs, keep the cloak on, be quiet. Don't be stupid, boy. Oh, that's interesting. If we read it as if it was a conversation rather than one continuous voice, so you have one person saying upstairs, keep the cloak on, be quiet, and the other person saying, like, don't be stupid, like, stay here, right? Like, take the cloak off. Maybe we we could read this as, like, an internal voice For Harry, because someone has let them in. He doesn't know who. He doesn't know what for. This might be a situation of out of the frying pan into the fire. So this might also speak to some of Harry's own trepidation about just obeying this voice in the darkness who's telling them to go somewhere.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for this Floralegia, Casper.
0: I will miss Floralegia.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. This week's voicemail is from Laura.
1: Hi, Harry Potter Sacred Text team. Um, I just finished listening to your episode on Gringotts and time. Something that has really struck me when reading through Deathly Hallows is that from when Harry, Ron, and Hermione wake up on the morning of the Gringotts heist at the beginning of this chapter until dawn breaks as Harry and Voldemort are having their final duel is one day. It feels impossible for so much to have happened in one day you know they broke into gringotts escaped on a dragon met aberforth snuck into hogwarts found slash destroyed four horcruxes including harry fought the battle of hogwarts harry died and came back to life sort of and so much more so you know they start the day anticipating the gringotts adventure but by the next day they live in a different world in which voldemort and so many of their loved ones are dead So now, when I reread Deathly Hallows, I get really anxious at the beginning of this chapter, knowing how much tragedy is about to unfold. And this kind of reminds me of how I've often been feeling this year as well. So many unexpected, tragic, scary things keep unfolding so quickly that I now feel like I'm on edge all the time, wondering if today will be another day in which everything will change. Chanel Miller, the author of Know My Name, posted a comic during the waiting days after the election that captured this as well. She described us as people on a rocking ship, crouched low to the ground and tense, expecting to fall. This state of anxious anticipation is a hard way to live, so I want to thank you for pointing to the way Harry moves through this chapter, trusting his present and future selves to handle things as they come. And yeah, just a blessing to everyone, all of us, moving through these days and years full of challenges and tragedies that we're able to handle these situations as well as the trio does and that we're also able to be kind to ourselves when we don't. Thanks for everything. Bye.
2: That is wild that it is all in like 36 hours. I had never noticed that. Laura, you've blown my mind. These poor children haven't slept.
0: No wonder they're hungry in this chapter. Like it's a lot going on.
2: All they had was like that snack that Hermione had from Bill and Fleur's since they left in the morning. I mean, it speaks to the amazing fortitude of these kids, right? That when they feel called to something, they're going to rise to do it. But Laura, I also just really appreciate your blessing for the moments where we can't. I do believe that we all are so strong and can do so, so much. But also, these children deserve some rest. No one should have to do what they are doing here.
0: I really hope that like the committee on rebuilding the wizarding world says, you know, trio, after the battle of Hogwarts, especially as you came back to life, Harry, you get a spa trip. Sabbatical. Oh, yes. I want cucumbers on eyes, I want foot rubs. Yeah, I just hope they get to like chill.
2: <laughs> Sabbatical for the trio. Casper, who do you want to bless this week?
0: I mean, we've spent this really wonderful chapter with Aberforth and I want to give him my blessing. And it's honestly, the thing that really resonated for me was the moment when he says, you know who's won, it's over. He's just so downtrodden. And why wouldn't you be? He has Death Eaters in his pub every day. He sees all of the ways in which Hogwarts is more protected than ever. It feels just overwhelming and impossible to defeat. And he has seen his crew of the Order of the Phoenix fall apart. And obviously his brother died just, you know, a few months ago. And so I guess I want to bless him for being in the midst of that hopelessness and everyone who's feeling at the end of their tether. I mean, I know I am, it kind of comes and goes, but it's just that sense of like, like I've got nothing left now, of course, we know it's not the end of the story for him, but I, I want to bless him for that moment of just feeling like it's too much because I think, you know, a lot of us are just in the middle of that. So if you're feeling it, a blessing for you.
2: Oh, it never occurred to me like he's still grieving for his brother. And I mm. wonder if he actually had a lot of faith in Albus and has lost it. Oh. Right. He's like, Dumbledore's dead. My brother's dead. Voldemort won. It just never occurred to me to look at Aberforth in this chapter through this, like, acute grief lens. And, like, maybe
0: even though he resented Albus and there was so much difficulty, he recognized the greatness of his brother as a wizard and maybe had some faith that, like, as long as his brother was alive, things would be okay. Yeah.
2: It's his big brother. Well, I want to bless Ariana. You know, she had a short and just really tragic life and I think I want to bless her because I I think her family messed up a lot in the way they tried to take care of her but they tried to take care of her I mean every single one of them she was so loved and I want to bless all of us who have been touched by tragedy and trauma but even if you don't always feel like it and I'm sure there were moments that Ariana didn't I really do believe that we're all loved whatever that means to you but I I Yeah. Ariana's life mattered. And no matter what you're going through right now, yours does too.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Well, friends, you've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. Join our local groups, including the Quarantined Quibblers, and we'd be so thrilled if you can join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. You make this show come alive. You can always leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and please sign up for my pilgrimage. We are getting together from January 7th to 10th, reading book one, maybe my favorite right now because i need beauty and joy and potential and imagination and help us create our new podcast at patreon.com slash not
2: Next week, we'll be reading chapter 29, The Last Diadem," through the theme of justice, where one of my best friends is going to come on and tell the opening story. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Arianna Nettleman, and our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are proudly distributed by Acast. We want to thank, of course, Laura for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell, and we will talk to you next week.
0: The thing that I wanted to say was that this kind of reminded me of Mean Girls.
2: That is what you wanted to say? Okay. Katie has her moment
0: to, like, supplant Regina George. Like, Albus is is supplanted and, and Aberforth is finally able to be like, why did we even like her?
2: <laughs> yes.